Well, let me invite you uh, to turn in your Bibles this morning to Luke 24. Uh, Luke 24. Every five or six years, we rotate through uh, particular passages in the Bible that focus our attention on the resurrection. And this year, uh, we come back to Luke uh, chapter 24. My goal this morning is to cover verses 1 through 48, and the title of the message is The Second Easter Miracle. The Second Easter Miracle, Resurrecting a Shattered Faith. Resurrecting a Shattered Faith. As morning dawned on the first Easter um, morning, God basically had two things on his to-do list. The first miracle he had to do was to raise Jesus from the dead, and I think it's reasonable to assume that that miracle happened in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. That's how fast it happened, just as the resurrection of believers will be in the future, according to 1 Corinthians 15. The second miracle on God's to-do list was the harder task of convincing Jesus' disciples that Jesus had, in fact, been raised. The amount of time that God would have allotted for this miracle would have been about 15 hours because it took that long to convince Jesus' closest followers that he had, in fact, risen from the dead. So all in all, there were two miracles performed on this Easter Sunday 2,000 years ago. The first happened instantly, and the second took all day. It took about 15 hours. And what we're going to look at today is the story of the second Easter miracle, the miracle of resurrecting Jesus' disciples' shattered faith and convincing them that he was raised from the dead. And before we get into the story that's going to unfold for us in Luke 24, I want to propose to you that part of the reason that Jesus' disciples had such a hard time believing in Christ's resurrection is because they had no way of making sense of his death, which they did not see coming at all. They expected Jesus, as they followed him, to gradually rise and power and to gain more and more followers, and then eventually to establish his throne and to rule over the whole earth in great glory. But instead, Jesus got arrested in the darkness of Thursday night and then was crucified on Friday morning, and he was dead and buried by sundown Friday evening. So not only was their Messiah dead, but their best and dearest friend was slain in the worst way possible by crucifixion on a Roman cross. On top of that, these disciples had all abandoned Jesus in their own fear, abandoning him in his hour of need. And Peter had sworn and cursed and denied three times that he even knew Jesus in the very moments of Jesus' hour of need. So as we come into Luke 24 this morning, we 
just need to appreciate that we have these guilt-ridden disciples suffering from PTSD, saddled with survivor's guilt, and grieving the death of their religious hopes, and grieving the loss of their dearest friend, and no doubt believing that they will each go to their grave as broken and devastated men. But all of that changed in Luke 24, not simply because Jesus was raised from the dead, but because Jesus did such a wonderful job of resurrecting their shattered faith, the shattered faith of his devastated disciples. And perhaps you're here this morning and your heart is broken. Perhaps you are dealing with some heart-rending disappointment with yourself or with your life that has left your faith in tatters and you find yourself unable to make any sense of your heartbreak and your hurt. Perhaps you wonder if you will ever trust or feel any genuine joy again. Luke 24 that we're going to look at this morning will certainly not answer every question that you might be asking this morning, but it will show you a Savior who is worthy of your trust. And my prayer is that by looking at this story here in Luke 24 this morning, that you will find your own faith being renewed and deepened, or perhaps find yourself being drawn to the Lord Jesus for the very first time. Let me pray and just ask God to do his good work along these lines in all of us. Lord, we come to you this morning so thankful for the privilege of being here and thankful for the privilege of hearing from your word. We pray, Lord, that you would speak to us through your word, Lord Jesus, and reveal to us the things concerning yourself in the verses that we will look at today, and may our hearts burn within us as you speak to us in our need. And we ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. The way we're going to break down our study, if you would have picked up a copy of the notes, uh, you would see this, is we're going to just observe as we go through the narrative of Luke 24, We'll observe seven things that Jesus does to resurrect the shattered faith of his disciples. Seven things that he does to resurrect the shattered faith of his disciples on the other side of him having died on the cross. And the first thing that he does, and you can fill in the blank of your notes, is he presents them with an empty tomb. He presents them with an empty tomb. As the narrative opens in Luke 24, there's some women that are coming to the tomb of Jesus on the Sunday morning after his death, so on the third day after his death, and observe what the text says in verse 1. It says, but on the first day of the week at early dawn, they came to the tomb bringing the spices which they had prepared. The fact that these women were bringing spices with them indicates that the last thing that they were expecting was a resurrection. They were expecting to find the dead body of Jesus that 
needed to be further prepared for its long internment in the tomb. But to their surprise, observe what happens in verses 2 and 3. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. What is their response? Did they say, wow, this is the resurrection. And henceforth, this will be known as Resurrection Sunday. No. Verse 4 tells us that they were perplexed about this. Literally, they were without a way of understanding why the tomb would be empty. So to help them in their perplexity, Jesus does a second thing to resurrect their shattered faith and convince them that he had risen from the dead. Number two, he provides them angelic messengers announcing his resurrection. He provides them angelic messengers announcing his resurrection. Would that help you? I mean, if you're perplexed about something and angels show up and provide an explanation for what you're perplexed about, would that be helpful to you? It would to me. And that's what happens here. Look again at verse 4. And while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. And we know from later in this chapter that these men are actually angels. And the big giveaway here is their dazzling clothing. Some of you look quite dazzling this morning. But none of you can compare to the attire of these angels. The Greek word translated dazzling is actually the Greek word for lightning. Literally, these angels were wearing lightning clothes, which is not just white, but the blinding white of lightning. The sight of these Angels in lightning clothes leaves the women beside themselves with fright. But observe what happens in verses 5 and 6. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. So there's the announcement which gives them perspective on why the tomb of Jesus is empty. It's empty because Jesus isn't there And he's not there because he's risen from the dead. So Christ has provided these ladies with an empty tomb. And on top of that, he has provided for them angels explaining to them that he has been raised from the dead. But there's yet another thing that he does for them to resurrect their shattered faith and convince them that he was, in fact, raised from the dead. Number three He reminds them of his prior predictions of his suffering and resurrection. He reminds them of his prior predictions of his suffering and resurrection. Observe how verse 6 continues. And then into the following verses. As the angels continue talking, they say to the women, Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of men and be crucified and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. 
If you read the gospel accounts, you'll see that in the weeks prior to Jesus' death, perhaps months, Jesus kept on telling his disciples that he would die and be raised on the third day afterwards. And he was telling them that these things must happen because this was God's sovereign plan. It was a part of his mission that he would suffer and die and then be raised from the dead on the third day. The problem was that these predictions that Jesus was making was not what his disciples wanted to hear. And because they didn't want to hear about Jesus suffering and dying, they did what we all do with stuff that we don't want to hear. They tuned it out, right? And because they tuned it out, their faith was left under-informed, and they were left with no theological categories for the suffering of the Messiah, which left them unprepared for his death and set them up for the devastating hopelessness that they are now feeling And it left them also with no category in their minds for anything like a resurrection. But now the angels are reminding these ladies of all these things that Jesus had been foretelling. And the women bowed low before the angels are thinking, that's right. Verse 8 tells us that they remembered his words. So observe what these women do beginning in verse 9. And they returned from the tomb and reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Who were these women? Look at verse 10. Now they were Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and also other women with them were telling these things to the apostles. So they go to the eleven disciples and they and others who were with them, and they tell them what just happened at the tomb. They tell them about the empty tomb and about the angels and dazzling lightning clothing announcing that Christ was raised, and they told them how the angels reminded them that Jesus had been foretelling his suffering and death and resurrection. And so they're passing all of this on to these men who had been following Jesus for three years. And what they say is no doubt very compelling testimony. That's how we would view it. But how do these men respond to their testimony? Look at verse 11. But these words appeared to them as nonsense, and they would not believe them. The Greek word translated nonsense speaks of the ravings of a crazy person. This means that the disciples are not just saying to the women, you are mistaken. They are saying, you ladies are crazy. And they refuse to believe what these women were telling them. At some point, though, probably after the women had left, Peter does the typical guy thing. He brushed off the testimony of these women at first, but then starts thinking to himself, you know, we probably ought to go check out the tomb 
to see if something really has happened. So observe what Peter does in verse 12. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen wrappings only, and he went away to his home, marveling or literally wondering to himself at what had happened. The language here indicates that Peter doesn't believe that the resurrection has happened yet, but he is puzzling with amazement over what possibly could have happened that left the tomb of Jesus empty. So up to this point, Jesus has provided his disciples with an empty tomb. He has provided them with angelic messengers announcing that he has been raised, and he has reminded them of his repeated predictions regarding the necessity of his suffering, death, and resurrection. Yet the disciples are still not convinced that Jesus has risen from the dead. So Christ does yet another thing as a part of the process of reviving their shattered faith. And this, to me, is, I think, the most touching of all. Number four, he listens to their story of shattered faith. He actually listens to their story of shattered faith. He invites them to tell the story and listens to them as they tell the story of their shattered faith. Observe what happens in verses 13 and 14. The text says, and behold, two of them, in other words, two of the men who were refusing to believe the women's story were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things which had taken place. In other words, they were talking about Christ's death. They were talking about their shattered dreams. They were talking about what the women had reported to them about the empty tomb and about the angels at the tomb and what the angels had said. Verse 15, and while they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them, but their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you are walking? And they stood still looking sad. And one of them named Cleopas answered and said to him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? And I love this, verse 19. And he said to them, what things? These men have experienced the devastation of their faith. Their faith in Jesus has been sorely disappointed. And the risen Lord is actually wanting to hear their story. Please make note of this. If you have had a shattering experience that has devastated you and devastated your faith, guess who is interested in your story? Jesus is. Just as he is interested in the story of these men. 
Think about it. Jesus doesn't have to take the time to listen to their story, but he does. He could have said to the men, hey, men, don't talk anymore. It's me. I am raised from the dead. But he doesn't do this. It seems that Jesus would rather give these men the opportunity to unburden their hearts and to share their story first. So he starts walking with them. He asks them what they're talking about. And then he asks them again, what things? And observe how these men reply to Jesus, verse 19. And they said to him, the things about Jesus, the Nazarene, who was, you might want to underline that word, was, who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word in the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priest and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. Then observe what they say in verse 21. But we were hoping, past tense, we're not hoping anymore, but we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since these things happened. They continue, verse 22, but also some women among us amazed us when they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body. They came saying, that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Now notice that these men do not say here that the women actually saw the angels. All they're willing to say is that the women came saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Now look at verse 24, which explains why they at least accept the fact that the tomb of Jesus is empty. They say, some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women also had said, but him they did not see. And that's the end of the story that they tell to Jesus. And that's why they are standing there looking sad. That's why they were hoping that Jesus would redeem Israel, but they're not hoping anymore. And Jesus patiently listens to their story of heartbreak and disappointment. But after listening to these men as they unburden their hearts, Jesus takes his turn to speak. Which leads us to the fifth thing that Jesus does to resurrect the shattered faith of his disciples and convince them that he has risen from the dead. Number five, he explains to them the scriptures and what they reveal about him. He explains to them the scriptures and what they, the scriptures, reveal about him. Observe Jesus' reply to the story that these men tell him in verse 25, and he said to them, Oh, foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. We have learned thus far that Jesus is the kind of friend who's interested in hearing your story of heartbreak and disappointment and shattered faith. So, therefore, feel free to pour out your heart to Jesus 
But when you're done, just know that Jesus will take his turn to speak. And when he speaks, he will tell you the truth that you need to hear, even if that truth hurts. But even when he speaks that truth to you, you can know that such truth is coming from the mouth of a friend who is willing to walk with you and hear your story and enter into your sadness. At the end of the day, isn't this the kind of friend that all of us need? A friend who walks with us, who chases us down on the road of sadness and walks with us on that road and listens to us and then who gives us the unvarnished truth that we need to hear. That's the kind of friend Jesus is to these men and to us. Another thing to keep in mind here is that Jesus is not just simply rebuking these men in his words here in verse 25. He's actually telling them the good news that God has been up to something far grander than what they could have imagined because these men have hearts that are too slow to believe. Look what he says, all that the prophets have spoken. And you might want to underline that word all in verse 25. Evidently, these men had been believing some of what the prophets had been speaking regarding the glory of the Messiah they were believing the parts that the prophets spoke that they wanted to believe. And they conveniently ignored the other parts about the suffering of the Messiah. So they missed the grander picture of what God was up to. And that's why their faith is right now so devastated because their faith was insufficiently informed because they weren't believing all that the prophets had spoken. And Jesus here is talking to these hurting men and he's literally taking these hurting men to the scriptures to inform their faith. Jesus continues in verse 26, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Please understand that on this particular day, Jesus has to do more than just convince his followers that he's been raised. He needs to help them understand his suffering, which has brought them so much sorrow. He needs to help them to see that even his suffering and their sorrow in his suffering was a part of God's plan foretold in the Old Testament scriptures. And to show them this, observe what he does in verse 27. Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Passages that they were no doubt familiar with and ones they had been ignoring all of their lives no doubt taking them to passages like Isaiah 53 where it is foretold that the Messiah would be as a lamb to the slaughter and who would die as a guilt offering for the sins of the people and by whose stripes 
we would be healed and how it was foretold in Zechariah 13, 7, that when the shepherd was struck down, the sheep would scatter and many other passages. In other words, Jesus has listened to their story, but now he's telling them his story as it was foretold in the scriptures. And it's a bigger story than they could have ever imagined. A story that their own sorrow has a place inside of, but a story that ends with their sorrow being swallowed up in incredible joy. But all in all, I'm struck by the fact that Jesus didn't respond to these two men by saying, hey guys, it's me, I'm raised. Instead, before he does that, he takes them to the Bible. He takes them to the Old Testament scriptures and does some spade work in their hearts. And it is only after he does this that he then decides to reveal himself to them as the risen Lord, which leads us to the sixth thing that Jesus does to resurrect his followers' shattered faith and convince them that he had risen from the dead. Number six, he makes three appearances to them. He makes three appearances to them. And the first of these appearances is to these two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Observe what happens starting in uh, verses uh, 28 and 29. It says, and, and they approached the village where they were going, and he acted as though he were going farther. But they urged him, saying, stay with us, for it is getting toward evening, and the day is now nearly over. So now we have an idea where we are in the day. The day is nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. I love the fact that Jesus acted as though he were going farther and waits for an invitation. This is the sovereign risen Lord of the universe. And he's a gentleman here waiting for an invite into their home. And they insist. And so he went in and stayed with them. And then what happens next is fascinating. They just had a seven-mile walk, and it's getting toward evening. Their first priority is to recline at the table and have some food to eat. So they pull out some stuff to eat and set it on the table. And then the two of these men recline at the table. They invite Jesus to join them at the table. So now the three of them are seated together. Then observe what happens in verse 30. And when he had reclined at the table with them... He took the bread, and he blessed it, and breaking it, he began giving it to them. Imagine having a guest in your home, and when you all sit down at the table, your guest says, let's pray, and they pray, and then they grab the food and start serving everyone at the table, including you, the host. That's what Jesus is doing here. Basically conveying, I'm really the host, and this home is really mine. And something about how he blessed the bread. They had heard him do that many times before. And something about how he broke the bread and gave it to them. They had experienced that before. 
awakened in them the realization that this was Jesus. And right at this moment, a miracle occurs in the eyes of these men. Look at verse 31. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And right as they recognized him, observe what happens. And he vanished from their sight. For starters, I, I love the manner in which Jesus decides to reveal himself to these men here. He's the resurrected Lord, and he decides to reveal himself to these men in the way that he goes about serving them food. That's amazing to me. If I were the resurrected Lord, I would be doing a laser show in the sky or flexing my resurrected muscles or something to reveal myself to these men, but Jesus so wonderfully chooses to reveal himself to these men by praying a little prayer and giving bread to these weary travelers. And now with Jesus having vanished from their sight, these two disciples are left sitting at their table with their jaws hanging wide open, and they say something that I don't think any of us would have expected them to say. Look at verse 32. They said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? Notice that these men are not raving about seeing Christ in the flesh at their dinner table, as amazing as that was. Instead, they're raving about how Christ spoke to them on the road as he explained the scriptures to them. And we get the same blessing today. Amen? As Christ reveals himself to us through the scriptures and we get to behold him in his word what most excited these two men on this occasion is the very thing we get to experience every single time we open our Bibles and behold Christ in the pages of the Old Testament and the New Testament. Well, as soon as these men realize it's Jesus, as we saw, he vanishes from their sight and the burning hearts of these men compel them to return to Jerusalem right away to tell their colleagues about what has happened. So observe what they do in verse 33. And they got up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem, which is amazing. How far away are they from Jerusalem? Seven miles. These men had just made a seven-mile hike, largely downhill to Emmaus, and they are now making the seven-mile hike back up to Jerusalem at the end of the day. To help you visualize this, imagine walking from Costco in Moreno Valley down to this address on Columbia Avenue and then walking all the way back to Costco. 14 miles in total. In terms of distance and incline, 
That's exactly what these two disciples are now doing so that they can tell the others about what they have experienced with Jesus on the road and how he revealed himself to them in the breaking of the bread. And so they make this journey back, uh, no doubt running. And when they finally arrive, verse 33 says, and they found gathered together the 11 and those who were with them. And no doubt these two disciples burst into the room saying, boy, we got an amazing story to tell you. But before they can speak, the 11 say, you're not going to believe what happened to us. So the 11 and the others speak to these two men in verse 34, saying, the Lord has really risen and has appeared to Simon. And then the two men respond in verse 35, which says, and they, the two men, began to relate their experiences on the road and how he was recognized by them in the breaking of the bread. And among the things they would have recounted would have been how Jesus walked them through the Old Testament scriptures and explained the things concerning himself from the Old Testament. And as they're doing that and sharing that with the 11 and the others who were gathered there, the minds of the 11 and the others are no doubt being expanded. Categories are being created in their minds to help them understand Christ's suffering and his resurrection, making them ready now for Christ to make an appearance to them all as they are together in this room. Observe what happens in verse 36. And while they were telling these things, he himself stood in their midst and said to them, peace be to you. Peace be to you, Jesus says to them. And they experience anything but peace when they see him. Verse 37 says, but they were startled and frightened, and thought that they were seeing a spirit. This means that they still aren't fully believing that Jesus has been raised bodily from the dead because they think they're merely looking at his spirit. They are startled and they are frightened, and we also know that they are troubled and that they're filled with doubts. And we know this because of what Jesus says in verse 38 and following. The text says, And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet, which no doubt bore the marks of his crucifixion. So now the disciples are looking at Jesus up close and personal. They are touching his hands and feet and side. They're basically handling him, doing all they can to verify that he was, in fact, physically raised from the dead. So at this point, these disciples have every reason to fully believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead, right? They have an empty tomb, angelic messengers announcing Christ's resurrection. 
They have reminders of Christ's repeated predictions of his death and resurrection before those things happened. They have Old Testament prophecies predicting his suffering and death and resurrection. And now there have been three certifiable appearances of Christ to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, to Simon Peter, and now this one. And during this third appearance, they're actually invited by Jesus to touch him and to handle him for the purposes of verification. Would you be convinced at this point? You know, we often think uh, we moderns are more and more skeptical than these ancients were. Um, but we underappreciate their skepticism. Look how they respond. Verse 41, among the first few words of verse 41 are these words, they still could not believe it. You know why they couldn't believe it? Because when your faith has been burned once, it's hard to let yourself believe again. Verse 41 tells us that they still could not believe it because of their joy. Does that make sense to you? In other words, they are starting to feel joy, but that joy alarms them. They're afraid to let themselves trust and feel joy again for fear that their faith might get crushed yet again. As they feel the beginnings of joy, they're like, I felt this way before, and then boom, look what happened. And I dare not let myself feel this joy again. These men are in a place where they can't handle another disappointment. The text also says in verse 41 that they still could not believe it because of their joy and amazement. Their thought is, we see Jesus standing in front of us, we're touching him, but how can this be? What we are seeing defies the laws of nature. We have so many questions and no answers, and we dare not let ourselves believe until we have all our questions answered. That's what's going through their mind. And so if you were Jesus, what would you do? Well, Jesus sees them still struggling to believe after all that he has provided for them. And he has every reason to rebuke them for not believing in the face of so much evidence. But he is patient and he is a gracious savior who recognized that these men need help. So observe what he does in verses 41 through 43. The text says, and while they still could not believe it because of their joy and amazement, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish. Some of your translations add the words, they gave him a piece of broiled fish and honey from a honeycomb. But at the very least, they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in front of them. What a moment <laughs> this had to have been 
Normally, it's not polite to stare at someone while they are chewing their food and eating, but everyone in this room is watching Jesus as he puts the food in his mouth and chews it and swallows it, and Jesus is fine with that. This is Jesus going to every link to revive his followers' shattered faith in him to persuade them that he who suffered so greatly has been raised bodily from the dead. But Jesus does more than this. After he eats the fish, he does a seventh and final thing to revive their shattered faith and convince them that he was raised from the dead. Number seven, he opens their minds. He opens their minds to understand the scriptures concerning himself. He opens their minds. This is the final miracle they needed. Observe what Jesus does in verse 44. Now he said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Here in this moment, please note that Jesus is pointing them to words, both his own words and the words of Scripture which predicted the suffering and the death and resurrection of the Messiah as a part of the necessary plan of God. But Jesus does more than this. He performs a miracle in their minds. Look at what it says in verse 45. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. This is the miracle they needed. And all of a sudden, they have the categories to fit everything, and they get it. And what Jesus does here teaches us something very important. The fact that Jesus has to perform this miracle in their minds after all of the evidence that they had been given shows us that evidence alone is never enough to persuade someone to believe the truth about Jesus. You can give overwhelming evidence to someone about Jesus Christ. You can read every verse of the Bible to them and explain it all, but the only way that they will ever believe the truth about Jesus is if God does a miracle of opening their hearts, opening their minds to see and believe. Look at verse 46. After opening their minds, Jesus speaks to them and he said to them, thus it is written, again, pointing them to the scriptures, that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, and you are witnesses of these things. What Jesus is saying is, this is God's plan it was God's plan foretold in the Old Testament that I suffer and die and then be raised. It was his plan that you experience the pain that you have endured and now that you would experience the joy that you are experiencing. And it is God's plan that you be the witness of all of these things so that you can now proclaim the truth about me to all of the nations. 
And the message that can now be proclaimed is, look at the text, repentance for the forgiveness of sins in my name. To make a long story shorter, we get some idea of the disciples' reaction by the end of the chapter where we learn in verse 52 that they were experiencing great joy and we learn in verse 53 that they were continually praising God. So evidently through Jesus' ministry to these disciples on this Resurrection Sunday, and then in the days that followed, they found themselves being brought by Jesus to a place of great joy and continual praise of God, and with a faith that is more seasoned and larger than it has ever been before because of Jesus' faithful ministry to them. It turns out that the worst thing that ever happened to them the most painful and devastating experience of their lives was a part of God's plan to show them the power of Christ to triumph over evil and to bring salvation to them and to the nations. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, these disciples and all of us gathered in this room can now know that evil does not have the last word. Both the evils we do and the evils others do against us do not have the last word. Jesus has the last word. And in the end, death does not have the last word either. Jesus does. And Jesus wants these disciples to know that God wants them to witness all of these amazing things so that they can now bring their testimony to the world, and that's exactly what they went on to do, which is why we are even studying Luke 24 almost 2,000 years later. Just as we close this morning, I just want to make a couple points. Luke 24 teaches us so much about Jesus And it teaches us more than simply that Jesus was raised from the dead. It shows us the love and the grace of Jesus. It shows us, teaches us that the resurrected Jesus is a master at ministering to people's doubts and disappointments and bringing them to a place of restored faith and confident hope in him. So if you are right now this morning in a place of hopelessness and despair, maybe over your circumstances or regarding yourself, Luke 24 teaches you that Jesus would like to walk with you wherever you are heading. And he is interested in your story because he's interested in you. Wherever you are this morning, Let Jesus come to you. Open your heart to him and tell him your lament. You will find that he is the best listener and you will also find that he is good at speaking to you the unvarnished truth that you need to hear and pointing you to his word to help you to understand the bigger picture of what God 
is up to, and he alone is able to perform the miracle of opening your mind to understand, primarily to understand him and to understand your suffering in the light of his story. You say, but I I have so many doubts, Pastor Milton. Fair enough. True faith is not the absence of doubt. True faith is trusting Jesus with your doubts and letting him address them. Sometimes I hear people say, I have so many doubts, and, but when my doubts are all resolved, then I'll come to Jesus. But why not come to Jesus now with your doubts and allow him to help you to work through those doubts? Is there anyone more qualified than Jesus to help you to work through the doubts that plague you? There's no one better than he. So bring your doubts to him and let him address those doubts and open your mind and broaden your faith to understand him as you ought. Let me say it this way. Salvation does not begin the day that all of your doubts vanish. Salvation begins the moment you bring your doubts to Jesus your doubts, your heartbreak, your fears, your disappointments. Let him be your shepherd through all of that. One final truth I'd love to point out from our passage today is this. Let me say it this way. You are free to repent now because you have a Savior if you want one. Jesus tells us in verse 47 that it was necessary for him to die and necessary for him to be raised so that now, verse 47, repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all nations. So if you're here today and you have never received the forgiveness of your sins through Jesus, the message of verse 47 is that you can now repent and receive the forgiveness of all of your sins through Jesus. What does repentance mean, you might ask? Repentance means to stop making excuses for your sins. It means to stop hiding your sins. Repentance means to stop pointing the finger at others and blaming others for your sins. Repentance means viewing your sins as something to be delivered from not something to hold on to. Repentance means no longer being afraid to confess your sins because you now know that there is atonement available to you through the death of Christ who died on the cross so that you can have forgiveness. Repentance means that you are humbled by the recognition that your greatest problem is sin and your greatest need is forgiveness from God who stands ready to give it to you through Jesus. To say it another way, repentance means recognizing that the greatest problem in your life is not someone else's sin, but your own sin. Repentance means 
recognizing that you are actually a far worse sinner than you ever knew before, but that you are also far more loved in Jesus than you ever dreamed possible. Repentance ultimately is turning from your sin because you now have something infinitely better to turn to. The beautiful, powerful Lord Jesus Christ. If God is opening your mind to repent and to believe in Jesus this morning, I plead with you to call upon his name today to believe in Jesus and to receive the forgiveness of your sins through him. Confess to him your story of brokenness and sin and despair and then let him finish your story in a way that brings you into the good of all that he has planned for you. Christ died, he was buried, and he was raised. And after being raised, he comes to sinful, broken-hearted doubters, and he seeks to cure their broken hearts and address their doubts with himself. And if you have never allowed Jesus to come to you, and if you have never come to him and allowed him to do that, I plead with you to do that today. Let's pray together. Lord, no one is in this room by mistake. We are all here by divine design. And we need you. We're so thankful, Lord, for all that you have done for us in dying on the cross, being buried in the grave, and then being raised. We're thankful for the beautiful picture that we have here in Luke 24 of how you so graciously, lovingly, and patiently ministered to the unbelief and doubts of these broken-hearted disciples of yours. But I know there are some in this room this morning who believe everything that we have said and may be thinking, man, it'd be nice if all of my doubts and broken-heartedness could just get resolved in the space of 15 hours. But instead, for them, it's days, it's weeks, it's months, and maybe years. I just ask, Lord, that you would hear their lament, that you would come to them, walk with them, and I know that you do, and that they would always abide close by you and sit before an open book called Your Word and allow you to reveal yourself in your heart to them and that they would know that though they don't have all the answers that they would love to have, that you are up to something grander than they can imagine that will transcend time and extend through eternity and that you are good and that you love them so much that you laid down your life for them. May they find your sweet comfort in the knowledge of these things. 
And for those that are here this morning that have never yet believed in you, Lord Jesus, draw them to yourself and save them. This is a miracle that only you can do. And we ask you to perform this miracle that they would call upon your name today. And that this particular Sunday of the year would be their day of salvation. We just looked at one appearance uh, of Christ here in, or a couple of his appearances that are narrated in Luke 24. Your resurrection is a wonderful event, but part of what you're communicating through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is, I'm just getting started. And there's so much more that unfolds from here through the rest of the Bible and then on through all of eternity. And the foundation upon which all of this rests and from which all of this grows is the righteous life of Jesus, the death of Jesus on the cross for the forgiveness of sins and his resurrection from the dead. Help us, Lord, to fix our eyes ever upon you who did so much for us. We ask all of these things, Lord, in the name of Jesus and all God's people said,